Well, welcome. If this is your first time watching, uh, my name is Kyle Mercer. I'm one of the pastors here at Two Cities Church. Uh, we're a new church, about three and a half years old. We gather right outside of downtown Winston-Salem. And we moved here three and a half years ago, not just with a church vision, the type of church we wanted to be, uh, but more than that, with a city vision. We wanted to reach every man, woman, and child in Winston-Salem, the, the quarter million people who call Winston-Salem home. And more than that, we wanted to bring the help and the hope and the healing of Jesus. And we've been doing that. Uh, but we also are in a unique season right now where we're able to do that in kind of a, in very concrete ways. And we're, we're talking to a lot of our partners. We're talking to a lot of organizations to meet a lot of needs in Jesus' name, to bring help and hope and healing. And, and you heard about it a little earlier, but let me just say, we're going to be able to, right around in our community, right where our church gathers, we're going to be able to feed 600 people. It'll be 300 people each weekend for two different weekends. And, and these are people that, uh, because of the economic instability, they have food insecurity, they have food instability, and we're going to be able to come alongside them, and we can do it because of your generosity. And let me just say thank you, uh, that you have continued to be consistently generous, and that helps to fuel and to fund everything that we're doing. And, and as you know, we, we've got many strategic partners, even church plants, in some very needy places. Now, I, I think about Logan, Logan Dagley, who's in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, they're in a shelter-in-place situation there, and their church is brand new. I, I think about two of our other church planners, uh, Louis Tamburo. I think about Cam Triggs. Uh, with, with City Awakening, with Grace Alive Church, and they are in Orlando, which is getting hit very hard because it's in a touristy area. And, and so we just want to continue to pray for our partners, but we also want to continue to give generously to them. So, so we're just very excited to, to do that. And, and let me just tell you where we are as a church. Uh, like you, we, we very much feel like right now we're in a blizzard, right? There's a lot going on. Not everything has settled. Uh, we're not sure all that's next. There's a lot of chaos, but we believe that once the stay-at-home orders are lifted, uh, we're going to be able to come out, and we're no longer going to be necessarily in a blizzard, but it's going to be winter. Now, how long will winter last, and what will winter look like? Well, that depends on probably every family and every industry, and, and I don't even know necessarily what it's going to look like for the church. Uh, we're, we're praying. We're trying to prepare. We're planning multiple different scenarios. Uh, we're, we're, just, we're continuing to watch and continue to listen, continuing to learn. But let me tell you, in the meantime, what is so important is going to be your community groups. Uh, you and your investment and your involvement and your attendance in your community group. That we've always been a church, not with community groups, but of community groups, but that has been even more and more known and necessary in this season because we have immediately been thrusted into being a decentralized church. We can no longer gather together in person on Sundays for a season, but our groups are still meeting. They're meeting online. Uh, they're meeting more often than ever. They, they are better attended than ever. So let me just encourage you to, uh, in this season, really be a part of your group, really be present in your group. And let's pray for our, our women's leads, our community group leaders, uh, because more than ever, they've had, they've had to pivot. They've had to learn how to lead a group online. And really, they are trying to the best of their ability, to the best of their ability and they're doing a great job, to lead you, to feed you, God's word, to know you in this season, and to walk with you through it. So let's pray for them, and then we're going to dive back into God's word in Galatians chapter 4. Pray with me. Lord, I want to pray right now for our community group leaders and our women's leads. I pray as well for the spouses of the community group leaders. J just so many people uh, who are trying to lead in new ways during this season, in the midst of changes in their jobs, or in the midst of changes in their families, or their kids' education and schooling. I just thank you for so many people who are continuing to lead. Lord, I thank you for the ways that our groups are helping people as they are feeling isolated and alone. Lord, I thank you that it gives a point of connection, Lord, but we do long to gather back in homes. We long to gather back in this building on Sundays. Lord, but this is where you have us, Lord. Lord, and, and though we want to get out of it in many ways, help us to get as much out of it as we can in this season, Lord. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians, we find ourselves in chapter 4. Again, if you're new, if you're joining us, we walk through books of the Bible. And, and this small book of the Bible, you may have never heard of it. If, if you've if you got a Bible, turn, keep going right, you'll find a little book called Galatians. And it's written by a guy named Paul. Now, Paul is a guy who becomes a Christian later in life. And that may be some of your stories. Uh, he, he, they guess kind of late 20s, early 30s. He becomes a Christian. He was very religious before that, maybe like some of you. He was religiously lost. He was in church, but not in Christ. He knew the rules and the rituals, but he didn't have a relationship with God. And what we see in the book of Galatians, and if you can turn to chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 11. Uh, what we see today, and this is what we've really seen for a while, is that Paul is concerned about people. He can't be with them, and so he has to minister to them through a letter. Now, that's interesting, right? He used the technology and the means of his day, which was parchment and you know, pen, basically, to, to write these letter, letters and then to send them, and it would take months to get there and then months to get back. And the whole point is he, he would use what he could to minister to the people that he could not be with. And, and we're trying to do the same thing. You know, he didn't have live stream, okay? He didn't have podcasts. He didn't have blogs. He didn't have emails. He used what he had. We're trying to use what we have. And what we see today, and this is an important transition, and, and as you leave your families or your business uh, or yourself or your kids or whatever, this is good to know that Paul makes a transition from head knowledge only to heart knowledge as well. Uh, he's, he, so far, he's been kind of like Paul the theologian. Like, you know, you read, he's talking about adoption, he's talking about redemption, he's talking about justification. Those are big words. If you don't understand them, you can go back and listen to other sermons in this series. But he, but he talks kind of high theology, um, but very practical. But now he gets very personal, he gets very relational, he gets very emotional, and he, he's going to very much talk about their friendship his relationship with the Galatians. Um, he's going to talk about his heart for them because here's what Paul would do. Paul would plant a church. He would pastor it. Then he would leave to plant another church and, and start to pastor it while he also would write letters to pastor past churches he planted. So he's a very busy guy and he's trying to keep up with a lot of different churches. And, and so I want you to uh, open up with me to Galatians chapter four and, uh, and look with me at verse 11. He says this, I am afraid. So Paul's being honest about his emotional state. I'm afraid. Uh, that I have labored over you in vain. Here's what Paul's saying. Uh, I'm concerned because they were listening to false teaching. They were uh, going back to the law. He's like, I'm, I'm worried that you're forsaking and forgetting the faith. I'm worried that you're backsliding and you're, you're not believing. He, he's incredibly nervous. He cares about people's spiritual condition. Let me just ask you this. Do you care about people's spiritual condition? Uh, one of the signs, this is really amazing, a, a sign, because it's like, well, you, know, you may ask this question, well, how do you know if you're a Christian? Well, that's a long, long answer, and there's many ways to know that. Uh, one of the ways to know it is, do I care about the spiritual needs of the people around me? Like, you know, non-Christians are not asking questions like, is he reading his Bible? Is she praying? Are they repenting of sin? Are they sharing their faith? Are they making disciples? When you begin to ask those questions, those are signs that you're born again, that you have the Holy Spirit inside you, that you've gone from, light, or from darkness to light and, and from death to life that you begin to care for people's spiritual condition. Let me just tell you this. Uh, the reason that you join the church, and you heard you know, earlier, you heard about our weekender. The reason that you would take the next step to join a local church is because when you join a local church, you say, these are the people for whom I'm going to uniquely care about their spiritual condition. I mean, you, there's, they, you know, we don't know for sure. They estimate there's like one, one or one and a half billion people on earth who say they're Christians. Are you and I responsible for all one and a half billion? Well, the, the obvious answer is no. Well, then who are you responsible for when it comes to the one another's, to bear one another's burdens, to care for one another, to encourage one another, to confess sin to one another? Well, the answer is your local church. The answer is the community that you've been connected and committed to. So Paul has this spiritual concern for them. And then what Paul's going to do in, in the section we're going to look at today, which is verses 11 through 20, 
Uh, This is Paul's most personal section of the scripture, and he's going to give us the right expectations of what life together as Christians will be like. He's going to give us the right expectations for ministry. When I say the word ministry, just hear open Bible, open life. It's another word for discipleship. It's another word for spiritual parenting. It's another word for developing each other in Christ. Any of those words would be fine, but Paul's going to give us healthy expectations, and and that's why we're going to look at this uh, together for, for a while, because think about how helpful it is if you can walk into a situation or a life stage or a season, and in that season and in that life stage and in that situation, you have the right expectations, right? How many of us would benefit if, if we had better expectations moving into marriage? It's like, well, I know if my perspective was right and I had maybe more of the expectations of my grandparents and my great-grandparents that I didn't think marriage was going to meet every one of my deepest needs all the time, maybe my marriage would be healthier I would be happier if I had more realistic expectations. I mean, how many young people, they go into work and they think I'm gonna make a lot of money and I'm gonna have a lot of flexibility and I'm gonna be in charge really quickly. Nope, nope, and nope, right? None of that happens. Those are unrealistic expectations. People have unrealistic expectations about um, what, how much free time they're gonna have. They have unrealistic expectations about what it's gonna be like to be a parent. They have unrealistic expectations about what it's gonna be like to own a home. And, and if people would have more and more real expectations, that's half the battle. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at what Paul tells us about ministry, and he tells us at least five things in this passage uh, about what ministry is like, and and I don't mean any of this to um, be negative, but it it should sober us to an understanding of ministry. So if you look with me first, here's the first thing that Paul says about ministry. Ministry is painful and not always fruitful. I don't mean to be discouraging, because a lot of times it can be fruitful, but, but let me read this to you. Ministry is painful and not always fruitful. Let's look again at verse 11. He says this, I am afraid that I have labored, and, if, and I don't know if you feel comfortable underlining in your Bible. I, I like to underline in my Bible, but if you want to circle or underline, you might want to circle that word labored. That is a word of painfulness. Like That is, a, that, that is the language of hardship. He says, I, I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. He's talking about the hard work of ministry. If you're going to make disciples, if you're, going to, if you're going to raise your kids up to follow Christ, if you're going to have meaningful Christian relationships with others where there's going to be mutual encouragement, mutual discipleship, it's going to be difficult. I mean, think about some of the language the Bible uses to talk about ministry. It talks about uh, farming. Well, that, to many of us, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, right? Scattering seed and sowing and watering and cultivating and lots of waiting and lots of watching and lots of not being in control. Well, that's ministry. Or you can think about it, it uses the word uh, servant. It uses the word shepherd, which means to take care of sheep. We are a sheep, but we also take care of each other as sheep. And sheep tend to be dumb. <laughs> we tend to be defenseless. We tend to be dirty. Uh, and that makes it difficult. So, so, so much of the language of it. And then there's just the ups and downs of ministry. If you read the letters of Paul or church history or you're honest about your own life, you'll realize that sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ, we wish it was like this. We wish it was just like an uphill, yeah, this is awesome. But it tends to be more like this in our own relationship and, the, and, and those that we're discipling and we're seeing grow, it's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of people that's like, oh, they're trusting the Lord, oh, they're back in sin. Oh, they're open about their sin, oh, they're hiding their sin. Their marriage is doing well, their marriage is not doing well. There's a, there's a lot of ups and downs to life. I, I remember, I've told you many stories before from Duke, but when I was doing ministry at Duke, I remember there was a guy and I spent about a year investing in him, uh, sharing the word with him, discipling him, meeting with him, and then one day, for no reason that I know of, he, he met with me and he said over coffee, I don't want to meet with you anymore. And then I remember what was kind of humiliating because he was 10 years younger than me, but he would ignore me on campus. And there were several times where I actually saw him turn around and walk in the opposite direction of me. To this day, I have no idea why he did that. I had another friend of mine, he was in ministry um, in a different city. 
And he told me the story. He said, he said at one point, a guy that he had spent a lot of time in ministry with, that he had invested in, that they had been on the same ministry team together, that this man had decided to leave his wife, to have an affair, to forsake Christ and to leave. And he said, I, I met with this guy several times trying to get him to repent, trying to get him to come back to Christ and come back to his wife. And he said, I'll never forget when I was sitting down with the guy and the guy looks at me across the table and he says to me, let me go. Let me go. I want, I want to be let go over to my sin. I want to do what I want to do. And he said, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the ups and downs. And that's the heartbreak of ministry oftentimes. And Paul wants us to prepare for that. And, and, and let me just give you a real practical tool in this season. As you're discipling others, as you're doing ministry to, with others, or even as you're thinking about your own growth, right? Because what Paul's saying here is, I care about people's spiritual condition. I, I, I'm concerned they're not growing. I want to know where they are and what their next step is. Well, let me just give you, you four practical questions. And I got these years ago when I was doing ministry. Someone gave me these. These are just four questions that will help you lead yourself and lead others. The first is, where are you or where are they? Right? I mean, that's the most important question if you're going to grow. You know, if you've ever been lost, and I get lost all the time, if I'm, if I'm in a theme park or I'm in a big shopping complex, and, you know, I'm always looking for that big map that shows everything. And, and even that map tends to be overwhelming until I find that one little dot that says, you are here. And it's like, well, thank God. Okay, now I know where I am, and so from there I can figure out everything else. And so the first thing you have to ask people is, you know, where are they? And, and, and honestly, sometimes that's half the battle. It's like, well, tell me what you're really thinking. Tell me what you're really struggling with. Tell me what you're really believing. Tell me where your marriage really is. I mean, if you can, try to do that. And then the second question, this is the deep question. This is the question most people never ask is, why are you there? It's the question of compassion. It's like, well, why do you drink so much? It's like, well, no one wants to think about that, you know? Well, well why is it that you keep avoiding your family? Like, why do you, you know, why are you practicing family distancing, not just social distancing? Well, why are you trying to always get away from your family? Well, what's, what's that about? Why are you looking at what you're looking at? And, and, and it's a hard, and you, you don't ask it in an accusatory way. You ask yourself, and you ask yourself in an honest way. And you may not like the answer that you, you tell yourself, you know, uh, if you're really honest. You may not like the answer that other people tell you. But it gives you compassion. I heard a story one time a guy was said, he said he was discipling a guy, and this may sound funny to you. He said he was discipling a guy, and the guy admitted he was addicted to Diet Coke of all things, but he just, he couldn't stop drinking Diet Coke. And the guy's telling the story. He says, I'm so frustrated with this guy. And I'm trying to get him to quit drinking Diet Coke. And I'm trying to get him at least to lessen it. And, and, uh, and then it came out one day. I said, well, why are you drinking so much Diet Coke? And he said, uh, well, I started drinking it when my brother died because it was his favorite drink. He said, and when I drink Diet Coke, I just kind of, you know, I, I drank it first because I kind of felt connected to him when I did that. And now I just, I just can't stop doing it. And he said, what happened in that moment is, he, you know, he still needed to you know, he can't play the victim card. He can't just act like I'm trapped and I can't do anything about it. But at the same time, it, it, he said it, let, it led him to have compassion on this man and to see, wow, there, there's a reason why this man struggles the way he does. So that's the second question, not just where are you, but why are you there? The third question is, well, you know, where do you want to be? It, really, the question is, where does God's word want you to be? It's like, well, where, where ultimately should you be? Well, a vision of following Christ, a vision of a life uh, of uh, saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. So it's like, what does that look like for you? That's something to move toward. And then the humble thing is, well, then what's my next step? Right? And that's like, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I, I've never given to the kingdom of God. And so I, my next step is to begin to give something to the kingdom of God. You know, maybe I've never read my Bible, and, but I'd like to be a guy who knows the whole Bible or a lady who knows the whole Bible, but that's going to take a long time. So maybe, you know, maybe my goal this year is to read the New Testament. It's like, well, whatever it is, you just go, where am I? Why am I there? Where do I want to be? What's my next step? That, that's how we labor together. That's how we labor with one another. That's how we ask questions about where, are we, where we are spiritually and where those we love are spiritually. So that's the first thing. He says, I want you to know that ministry is painful 
It's not always fruitful. Our goal is to be faithful. God's goal is to bring the fruitfulness. Here's the second thing. The second thing he wants us to know is that ministry is personal, not professional. Ministry is personal, not professional. I want you to see this right out of the text, verse 12. Brothers, that's a very personal word. He's going to later say children, but he's using familial language. Brothers, I entreat you, or you could say I appeal to you. Um, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. So he's confronting here the... uh, that ministry is personal, not professional, because especially in the American context, we view ministry as a very professional thing. People go to seminary, uh, they stand on a stage, maybe like me, or they sit behind a desk as a counselor, or, you know, or they, they, they're a, a student minister or a student director or a college minister or a college pastor. And, and, because, and we tend to, and this, this is dangerous, we tend to think about ministry as something done by professionals, that it's done by a few people from a distance, and that's not true. That we, we, we believe there are two myths, the myth of the holy person and the myth of the holy place. There's no such thing as a more holy person who, you know, we have to get them to see, you know, back in the day it was Billy Graham or, you know, it's, it's we got to get them to a certain person to hear them or we got to get them to a certain place, a camp, a conference, a church event. Uh, the truth is actually that ministry is for every Christian to do in every place. And, and what we're told here is this language of being family. And Paul, look what he does with that. He, he says, I appeal to you. What does that mean? That, that assumes, or I entreat you. It assumes a relationship. Paul, Paul does this in several places. So, for example, in the book of Philemon, you may want to look at that with your community group. In the book of Philemon, Paul writes this letter to a guy named Onesimus. And, and he, it's a long story, but he's trying to get Onesimus to do something. And, uh, and he says, at the very beginning of the letter, he goes, I could command you to do this. He said, but instead of commanding, because that's not always helpful just telling you what you have to do, telling what you need to do, telling what you know you need to do. That's not always helpful. He says, what I'd rather do is he goes, I'd rather appeal to you as an old man. He says, and as somebody who is your father in the faith. So what does he do? And this is really helpful parents. This is really helpful friends, community groups, is he leverages his relationship in the conversation for the person's spiritual good. I mean, this is so important. It's like, you know, you, you, I've always was taught that relationships are like a bank account, right? You, you have to make a lot of deposits so that you can make the withdrawals. And that the weight of truth that you want to share with other people, it needs the net of relationship to hold that weight. And so Paul says that, and then he says two things. He says, become as I am, for I became as you are. Now, those are both interesting phrases. Uh, what he's saying, I'm going to try to you know, say this as clearly as I know how to. He's saying, look, he's talking about how he led them to Christ and made them into disciples. And he's saying, look, the way that you came to Christ was by me becoming like you. I I was able to reach you. I became like you. But when you come to Christ, the hope is that you would actually become like me. You would follow Christ. And so let let me just think about this for a couple minutes. First, he says, I became like you. Now, he's not talking about giving in to certain sins. He's not talking about not following Christ and not obeying the law. He, what he's basically saying there is it's what we call incarnational ministry. It's what Jesus did. It's, it's the whole idea is what? We couldn't go to God, right? We can't get to heaven. That's the whole message of the Old Testament. We can't make it to heaven. We can't get to heaven on our own. So what does God do? We can't go to him, so he comes to us. That's gospel ministry. We, we have to realize most people will never come to our church. They will never watch an online service even. We can go to them. We, and, and, and you know, I'm, I've told you this before, but I, I'm in a uh, cohort with pastors right now, helping all of us as pastors to be more evangelistically faithful and fruitful in our lives, to share Christ more in our lives. And, and one of the questions that my coach asked me 
is, and he asked our group, as he said, is there anywhere, he said, in the church, we're always asking people to believe and belong. He said, is there anywhere, and hear me say this clearly, he said, is there anywhere where you belong out there in the world? Not to its value system, not that you're worldly, not that you're compromising, but he said, is there anywhere where we see Christians belonging out there? What, here's what I mean by that. Do you have a gym membership where you're actually in the world, not of it, like Paul says, we're in the world, but not of it, but are we actually out there? You know, I, I've heard stories before. I know a lady in our church, and she joined a book club in her neighborhood. I don't think, I don't even know if she started the book club. It's not a Christian book club. I think she might be the only Christian in that book club. But, but she's using it as an opportunity to build relationships so that she can share Christ with people. I know moms who decided I'm going to be part of the PTA, or, or moms and dads, or, or husbands and wives who said I'm going to be part of the HOA. I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a, be a part of a group, and I'm going to belong someplace and I may be the only Christian in that place. And the only thing that I may have in common with those non-Christians is that we're all in the same place doing the same thing. But, but I want to become as much like them as I can so in hopes that they would, they would come to Christ and become like me. Which leads to the second thing he says. He says, become like me. Now, let me just ask you a difficult question. And it's a question I've been wrestling with this week personally. Can you call other people to be like you? Like, here's a, let me make it really specific. Like, are, are, do you have a life of faith that you could call others to emulate? Like, as, as you, would you say, here, let me bring it down even up, one level lower, um, to, to many of you maybe who are parents, would you want your son or daughter to have your marriage? I mean, that's something to think about, you know? Would you like your best friends, the people you love the most, would you like them to have your devotional life? Would you like them to have the, the, the prayer life that you do? W- would you like those in your community group to be in the same place with their struggle with sin that you are? And see, the, the, the hope is that you could say to people, not in every area of your life, right? There's so much grace in all this. But the hope is that you would say, man, God's doing a work in me. I'm changing. I'm growing. And maybe it's just in one area. Maybe you're like, it's just in my prayer life or it's just in my heart for the lost. But I feel like God's doing something in my life. And so I just want to, in this one area, I want to say, try to become like me. Not, not, don't be me. Be Christ. Be the Christ-like version of yourself. Uh, but there's going to be other areas of your life. Let me just say this. If there's an area of your life where you feel like, I do not want I would not want my daughter to, have, to, to struggle with this same sin struggle that I am at my age. If that's, if that's how you feel, then that's, that's, a, that's an area of your life where it's like, that would be a, a good way to say, all right, Lord, would you help me repent? Would you help me grow? Would you help me change that I may, that I may help others change in this area as well, that I may give hope to other people? Which leads to the third thing, that ministry involves obstacles and opportunities. That ministry involves obstacles and opportunities. I want you to look at verses 13 to 15 with me. You know it was because of a bodily ailment. So this is interesting. Paul suffered even while doing ministry. Paul was blessed by God, but he had illness and injury that came upon him. Here's what it said. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And and though my condition was a trial to you. You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, I want to tell you the best that we know, because whenever you read a letter from Paul, it's like, the best way I've heard it described, it's like listening to one side of a phone conversation, right? We're never quite sure exactly every detail of what happened on the other end. Here's what most scholars, commentators think happened. Well, here's what we know for sure. Paul had a bodily ailment that 
that gave him an opportunity he would otherwise not have had to minister to the Galatians. That's what we know for sure. Now, many people, not every person, but many people think what happened is Paul got malaria or something like it. And the, and the only cure back then to, to even have any kind of uh, help when you got malaria was to leave the mosquito-infested woods to go up into the mountains. And guess where Galatia is? It's up in the mountains. And, and, and what Paul, people also think is that Paul may have had an eye condition that he may have gotten from malaria. Uh, and the reason that they say that is because he says in this text here, he says, you would have gouged out your eyes for me, which is not like a colloquial statement. It's not like, you know, often we'll say, I, I would have given my right arm. Well, you didn't say I'd gouge out my eyes. I mean, that, that just, that's a very specific thing to say that makes people think maybe he had bad eyesight. And then later at the end of Galatians, Paul goes, look with what big letters I write, as I always do in my letters. It's like, well, why do you write? Why would anyone write with really big letters? You know, well, there might be a couple of reasons, but one reason might be he, that that person can't see very well. But but here's the whole point: Paul had pain, and Paul had suffering in his life, but it actually led to more opportunity for him to minister to others. And, and I think this is actually one of the keys to freedom, to joy in the Christian life, is to believe that God has purpose in all of your pain. That. God has a purpose for all of your pain. Now, 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 there's three types of things God tends to use, and God can do whatever he wants. I'm just giving you categories that, that you see in Scripture and you see here, that God will often use, and we've said this here many times before, that God will often use your greatest weakness or your greatest sin or your greatest suffering will become long-term over the course of your life. It will often become your greatest ministry. I mean, just think with me about this for a second. Well, why your weaknesses? Well, let me tell you one thing. People... People are impressed by your strengths, but they feel close to you because of your weaknesses. And so when you, whenever you share a strength, you know, that may impress people. They may, they may go, wow, I can't believe you can do that or make that much money or have accomplished that or were rewarded with that. Uh, and then they'll be very impressed with you. They may even follow you from a distance. But it's, it's weaknesses that make people feel close to you, like they can come to you, like they can talk to you. If you're somebody who talks often about your weaknesses, you're going to find people who feel very comfortable talking to you. And what, and what weaknesses do also is it creates a humility in your heart. And you go, well, I, you know, I've got weaknesses. I'm very aware. And so it makes you a very compassionate person on others. So God will use your weaknesses. Secondly, God will often use your sin. And, and you know, um, you want to fight sin. You want to say no to sin. You want to be victorious over sin. Over the course of your life, you want to become progressively more like Christ and saying, more, saying no to sin more often. Uh, but here's what I've seen. I've seen this. And you can think of AA, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, uh, that's not a Christian organization, but the principle, you, at the level of analysis I'm talking about, you'll be able to see what I'm saying. What you see in that is you see people who have said no to alcohol addiction and are walking in some type of freedom, helping other people do the same. The whole purpose is that people who are struggling with specific sins, and you know this from your own sin struggle, they don't want to be ministered to people who've never struggled with that sin. Somebody goes, I have no idea what it'd be like to be angry. I've never been angry. It's like, well, that's not helpful. I mean, that's not, I don't want to talk to you. You know, that person doesn't want to talk. It's like the, the person, you want to be, you, but you don't want the person who's in the exact same stage as you having as little victory as you. That's not encouraging either. It's like, yep, you're right. Yep, we've always had a difficult marriage. Yep, and uh, yeah, now we built two separate master bedrooms and we live in two different parts of the house. It's been, you know, that's not what you want. You want the person who said, hey, I've struggled with this sin. It was a big struggle in my life over the course of a decade, but here's five things that I've done. God's been gracious. I'm walking in a new level of freedom. You can walk in that level of freedom as well. So God will use your greatest weakness. God will use your greatest sin. God will use your greatest suffering. And, and we're in a season right now where there's people who are suffering, right? 
And I don't know all that, God's doing 10,000 things. I don't know all that God's doing. But again, people who are suffering, they want to be ministered to by people who have suffered, often in that same way. People who've lost their job, they want to talk to others who've lost their job and walk through it. People who, who are struggling with singleness or struggling with infertility or have a very difficult marriage or have a very rebellious child or are walking with a child through a disability long-term, they want to be ministered to. They want to be cared for. They want to look to other people who've been in that circumstance as well. And so we, we end up seeing that for Paul, his suffering ended up to a whole t- another type of ministry. I mean, think about this. If Paul had not gotten this bodily ailment, whatever it is, he most likely would have never gone to Galatia. We most likely would not have the letter of the Galatians, which is considered by most to be one of the most influential letters of the entire New Testament. And so here's what happens, though. Not only does Paul have a bodily ailment, they have to minister to him out of weakness. Look at verse 14. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, I know it was difficult for you to minister to me when I was in need. Let me just say, we are ready to minister to you, whatever your needs are going to be. Whatever sickness, whatever illness, whatever weakness, whatever sin, whatever suffering you're going, we want to come alongside you. We want to minister to you in this season and especially in the next season as Lord willing, we're going to eventually be able to gather back together again. Which leads to my next point. Um, Ministry is about uh, telling the truth in love. Ministry is about telling the truth in love. Look at verses 15 to 16. What then has become of your blessedness? And we don't use that word anymore today. Blessedness just means the joy of your salvation. You know, we said this before here that you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. And when he asked this question, what has become of your blessedness? He says, for I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given unto me, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And, And we don't know this for sure, but here's what I think. I think they knew that they'd lost their joy of salvation. I think the Galatians knew it. I think some of you know that. You know, and, and I, I've had those experiences in my life before where someone said to me, you know what, Kyle, you're not as passionate as you used to be. Or you're not, you don't love the lost like you used to love them. Or you're not repenting of sin like you were. You're not loving the word of God like you were. You're just not as excited about Jesus and the Bible and the mission as you were. And it's like, you know, normally when somebody tells you that, you go, I kind of knew it. And see, Paul does something here that I just want to give you this as a principle and, a, and something very practical that I think will be really helpful, especially in the season of quarantine, uh, and something I'm trying to work on. What Paul does here, and it's a great principle of, of how to talk to people about things, because Paul's going back and forth of dealing with difficult things. He connects before he corrects. He connects with, hey guys, you remember what it was like? I love you. I saw you grow so much. You would have given me your eyes. You did hard things for me. You took, you, you know, you, you, you took me on even when it was difficult to, you know, for you to do that. And then he says... Have I now become your enemy because I'm trying to tell you the truth? He connects with them before correcting them. Too often what we do with people is we correct them before we connect with them. We correct our children without connecting with them. We try to correct our spouses without connecting with them. We try to correct our friends even without first connecting and saying, hey, I really love you. I really care about you. I'm not trying to butter you up here. We've got a great relationship. I I desire the best for you. Now I'm going to tell you something hard. And Paul says this, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, Now, the truth is such an important concept, um, well, in life, but certainly in the Bible. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And here's what Paul's saying. Have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? Now, now here's, here's what's the truth. The truth is that truth is hard to hear and truth is hard to speak, right? Like, I mean, we've all had this situation or this circumstance where somebody comes into your life and they tell you the truth. 
And most times when somebody tells you the truth uh, about, I don't know, maybe, maybe someone comes up to you and says, hey, listen, you, that, the relationship you're in with that guy or that girl, it's completely inappropriate. You know it's bringing you down and you know it's not helpful. Well, what, what happens in that moment? It's like, you don't want to hear that, right? You're like, yeah, I don't want to hear that. Because usually if you hear, the, if someone speaks the truth to you, here's what that means. You were wrong. They may say it in the most loving way, but you're wrong. You need to change. There's parts of, th- there's maybe things you're believing that are wrong. There's maybe parts of you that need to burn off. There's, there's the, the worst parts of you need to die. That's incredibly difficult to hear the truth. And then honestly, it's very difficult to speak the truth to people. Many of us, we just want to be liked. We, we, we just want to keep the peace. We just want to avoid any type of conflict. And so we never actually tell people the truth. And, and that's hard. We don't tell ourselves the truth. I mean, some of you, you, you know, you're telling yourself you're okay and you're not okay. I'll tell you, a very, in, in you know, 15 years of ministry, a very common area I've seen this is particularly men tend to think their marriages are much better than they are. If you ask the average guy, how's your marriage going? He's like, ah, eight, probably a nine. Occasionally, you know, we have a rough patch and it's a seven, you know, on a scale of one to 10. And then you ask the wife, well, how's your marriage? She's like, it's a two. It's terrible. You know, we haven't talked in weeks. Uh, I think we hate each other, you know? And what, what happens in there is that you have people, particularly in this situation, I'm picking on the guys, but who we're not really, either we're not aware or we're not being honest with ourselves about how we're really doing. And so Paul says, I want to be somebody who can speak the truth. And truth is, by the way, it's a long-term game. Lying is, it doesn't work. You know, you're eventually going to be accountable uh, to God for it. But, but lying, a lot of people think, well, lying will work in the short term. If I tell a couple lies, I'll get myself out of a situation. Often what happens, and let me just warn you here, if you start telling the truth, things may get more difficult in your life for a season. I've seen that. I've talked to couples before. Hey, you know, you've been married for a while and you're lying or you're lying or you're both lying. You're going to have to start telling the truth to each other. It's like the marriage may get worse for two to four weeks. Because, you know, I, one guy, he said to me recently, he said, uh, he said, man, my wife has really found her voice. And what does that mean? My wife has learned how to tell me the truth. And it's a little painful at first. And it's a little difficult at first. And, and, and so what Paul says is truth is a long-term game. He, he says, here's what the false teachers do. They do the opposite of that. Look at me at what he says about the false teachers. He says this, they make much of you. What is the opposite of telling you the truth? Just making you feel good. He, they make much of you. Literally, they are zealous for you. They, they, they act like they're excited about you, like they're passionate about you. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. It's not helpful. Uh, we don't want to be committed to making much of you. We want to be committed to, make, to, to your good. And he says this, they want to shut you out. Shut you out from what? Shut you out from true community, from the true gospel, from the true teaching that you may make much of them. It's like this big cycle. This is the, and this is in all of scripture. The cycle of false teaching is they will say good things about you as long as you'll say good things about them. And then Paul says this, which is even more clear. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of. It is, sorry, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. So what Paul's saying here, I can't get into all this. He's basically saying, uh, what happens is that the teachers come and they say all these great things about you and they praise you while they're with you so that you'll give them money. Basically, then when they leave, they don't care about you. When they're with you, they're really nice so that, I don't know, they'll have a lot of influence, they'll make a lot of money, uh, and then they'll leave and they'll go do that somewhere else and they they don't care about you except for when they're with you because they want something from you. That's his whole point. And then Paul says this, he says, here's my heart motive, verse 19. My little children, 
for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I'm not going to talk about this verse at all because it's the perfect Mother's Day verse for next week, okay? I'm serious. We're going to come back to this. I know you're like, uh, yeah, every mom wants to talk about the pains of childbirth on Mother's Day. Not exactly. Um, But we're going to look at this verse as well as the rest of chapter four and really dive into this next week and what does it mean for Christ to be formed in you and what does it mean to be in the pains of childbirth? We'll come back there. But Paul says, that's my heart of ministry. But then he ends with this in verse 20. He says this, I wish... I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Here's my final words uh, and final point here. It says, ministry is about being present with people. Ministry is about being present with people. And this is interesting. Paul ends, let me read it one more time. He says this, verse 20. I wish I could be present with you. Now, isn't that an amazing statement for a time that we're in right now? He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Here's what he's saying. There are certain things that can't be done from a distance. And, we, and just so you know, we feel that as pastors, we feel that as staff, we feel that as a church. How do you lay hands on people from a distance? How do you greet each other? The Bible says a holy kiss. It just means greet each other warmly and welcome each other. How do you do that from a distance? How do you practice hospitality and do so many of the one another's? You can't do it from a distance. Paul says, I'm, I wish I could be present for you because there's certain things that I can't communicate the way that I want to. And then he says, I'm perplexed. And here's just what he means by that. I, it, the word literally means I'm confused or I'm puzzled. He, he's saying this, I don't know exactly how you're doing. And, and let me just say that right now to you through this camera that uh, we wish, I wish that I could be present with you guys. Our staff, our pastors, we wish that we could be present with you. The community group leaders wish that even more than just Zoom calls and Google Meets and all that, that they could be present with you. We miss, I miss the dozens of interactions that I had every Sunday with you guys. Uh, we, we miss the singing together, the taking of communion together, the praying together here, the, the, the corporate worship that we had. We miss it. We miss being in each other's homes. We miss the counseling sessions. We miss all of it. But let me just say, we are praying for you. We, we don't know exactly how you're doing. We're trying the best that we can to reach out to you. This, again, is why I'm going to say that your community groups are incredibly important in this season. Let me just say this. Please be as present as you can where you can. Whether that's being incredible, it's going to take, because we can't fully be present with each other like we want to now, it's going to take every person who calls to City Church home being present where they can. Being pre- be present as a dad. Be present as a mom or as a husband, as a wife. Be present as a friend. Be present as a community group person. I want you to know that we are very much desiring to meet back together and to be present with you all. And we are taking time right now to pray about that and to prepare for that and to plan for that as we come out of this blizzard and head into winter. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just pray right now and we know this, that even though we can't be present with one another, we have a God who is present with us. And even though we are often perplexed, we don't know exactly what's going on. We have lots of questions. We're very confused. We don't know how every person's doing and how this is, how the uh, isolation or the stay at home is affecting everybody and how everybody's job and industry and finances and spirituality and, and relationships are doing, Lord. But in this season where we don't know all of those things, Lord, we know, God, that you are present and you are not perplexed. You know what you're doing. You have a plan, Lord. We are trusting in you, Lord. And we are, we are trying to be the best version uh, of ourselves uh, as a church as we are decentralized in groups across the city. Lord, but we long for, we pray for the day we can gather back together here and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.